Welcome to another inspirational teaching by Pastor Mike Foreman, Senior Pastor of the First Baptist Church of Level Plains. For more information about Pastor Mike and the church, please visit our website at www.fbclp.life. Let's join Pastor Mike now as he shares from God's Word. Amen. Amen. Wow. That'll lift your uh, spirits, won't it? That'll be a blessing to you. And uh, that's what we've come to do today is to lift up the name of our God. And uh, his name is Jesus. Amen. And uh, we, uh, we often forget that, don't we? At Christmas time, we can get so caught in the fact that we're worshiping a babe uh, who's in a manger. And uh, we have our quaint little scenes and uh, we forget that that baby is uh, none other than Elohim. And uh, he is God who is Emmanuel. He has come to be with us. And, uh, you know, we often forget too, right, that he, he came. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He came, but he always was. But we forget that he still is. Amen. I mean, he is still the God who wants to be with you. I mean, think about that. You know, Jesus told us and promised us that he would never leave us nor forsake us. And yet sometimes we forget that truth. We celebrate Christmas and we celebrate as if he's some kind of doll in a manger when in reality he's a king on a throne. And uh, we had to remind ourselves during this Christmas holiday just who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to do a little bit this morning. We're going to sort of be reminded by thinking about the theme of worshiping at Christmas. And as we think about worship, there's a great uh, story in the Bible that talks about the worship of this newborn king. It's found in Matthew chapter 2. And if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 2, where you'll immediately begin to understand that it's the story of the wise men. And, uh, you know, we, uh, as Tim already said, you know, the, the wise men were not there at the birth. They were not the first to see the baby Jesus. The first to see the baby Jesus were the shepherds. You can remember they were in the fields watching their flock by night, the Bible says. And they saw the angelic hosts in the sky and they proclaimed that, Born in the city of David is a savior who is Christ the king. And they went and they found the baby just as they've been told them. And they worshiped the king. And then they left and the Bible said it really changed their life, didn't it? Because the Bible says they left and they began to, to tell everybody the things that were told them. And then sometime later we have what we find here in the narrative of Matthew's gospel in chapter 2. The narrative about the wise men. And so the wise men, they come and they, they come to visit Jesus. And notice the narrative, how it picks up the story. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet Micah, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring word back to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with an exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother. They fell down and they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasuries, they presented him gifts of gold, of frankincense, and of myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about worship this morning, Lord, we look at the life of the wise men who traveled probably perhaps a thousand miles to come and to find the baby called Christ, born King of the Jews. Lord, they were sent, no doubt, by divine decree. Sent from that far country into Bethlehem to participate in the birth narrative of our Savior, Lord. No doubt, helping us to see that, Father, that he was not just a king of the Jews, but he was the king and the Savior of all men. And so we thank you for the narrative. We thank you that, Lord, you would include even those of us who are outside of the Jewish faith, that you would allow us to be grafted in and be the sons of Abraham by faith. And even this morning as we worship, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that as the wise men found King Jesus, that this morning you have made yourself available to us, that you're not hiding, Lord, you can be found this morning. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw that lost heart to the Savior, that they may be saved today. But, oh, Lord, many of us have been walking with you for a long time. We pray even this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would draw our hearts afresh and anew this morning, that we would come and worship our King, and that we would leave here today with a heart of gratitude and worship, and Father, a song on our lips and a praise on our tongue for you who are great. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so as you look at the narrative, you, you, you sort of see that Matthew 2 is, is shrouded in mystery. Now, it's shrouded in mystery in the sense that we begin to ask ourselves, who are these wise men? You know, we see the arrival of the wise men, and you see it in verses 1 and 2, and you're not told a whole lot about them. Notice it just simply says, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. We're just told that they're wise men. And, and it says that in verse 2, 
It says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship. There's a lot of mystery about who these wise men are. We have traditions, right? We see all these different uh, nativity sets. And it's interesting to me that all the nativity sets always have three kings, right? There's always three that come. And, and some sets look a little different than others. You know, some have them sort of dressed up with uh, crowns on their heads and, and, and kingly robes. And then there's some that have them dressed as if they were astrologers. And, you know, so there's a lot of mystery around that word wise men. We would also know it as the word magi. But let me sort of clear up a little bit for you this morning because the magi, the wise men have been around at least since the Persian kingdom. We know this from biblical history. We know this because if you were to turn your, in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, you'll find in Daniel chapter two, when Daniel is unable to uh, interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar raises him up into a high and a, and a lofty position in the kingdom. And guess what his position was? He was over the satraps, but also over the wise men. He was over the magi. He was over those, those guys who were considered in the Persian empire to be the, the scholarly. The ones who had knowledge and they had sort of a broad knowledge. You can remember that even Daniel himself was picked to be part of the king's cabinet because he was a teenager who had a lot of wisdom and, and a skill for learning. And so the, the Magi, dating all the way back from Daniel's time, were these guys who had this knowledge not just of the stars, but, but they would also have knowledge of religion. They would have knowledge of medicine. They're the ones who were philosophers of the day. Uh, they, they had a lot of knowledge about history. And so these were very learned individuals. And so when you think about the Magi coming, you have to understand that this is nothing new in the biblical narrative. This is something that we can date back to Daniel. Now, having known that, and you begin to think about that, you begin to see that they come. And the question that I've sort of put in my notes and I sort of asked myself uh, about them is, why a star? Well, we're going to talk about that star in just a minute, but most, most likely God used a star because the main thing that they did was be able to read the stars, supposedly, right? They were supposed to read the stars and then they would come up with some kind of uh, interpretation for kings and for leaders uh, after reading the stars. So they were uh, astrologists. They, they could understand the star, the solar system. They can understand what was there. And so when we think about the star, it's something that God could use in their life that they would understand that would help lead them. Now, when you begin to think about the, the Magi, notice what it says in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, the wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. And what did they say? That they were looking for him who was born king of the How did they know Jesus was born king of the Jews? What, I mean, what do they even know about a Messiah to begin with? They're not even Jewish. Well, when you begin to think about the Babylonian captivity... And the 70 years that the, the Jews would spend in captivity, there's no doubt some time that would have been spent learning that particular religion, learning about the fact that there is prophecy that there is this coming Messiah who is going to come. No doubt, we know that even Daniel, right? Because Daniel, and we know that his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys were unwavering in their faith. 
We know that they were willing to, to die for their faith. And so no doubt that they would learn from these godly men about the Jewish faith. And, and, and even so, if you look at the history from the time that they're released from captivity, there's this intermingling of these folks. And so this is all through their history coming through. And so how does this happen? How do they know about this king? Well, the history, the impact of Daniel and his friends. But ultimately, where do they know it from? They know it from the Lord himself. They know it from God, right? God directs them there. It is all in God's decreed plan. It's all God's purpose. It's all that God has done to help us to see his son revealed to a world that needs him. And so here, the Magi come, and as they come in, they come to want to worship this king who is born king of the Jews, this Messiah king, this baby, as they come. Now, how many were there? Well, we don't know. History, tradition tells us there were three. We base that basically off of the fact that there was gold and frankincense and myrrh. But the reality is we don't know. But most biblical scholars, when you do research, believe there's probably over 300 traveling with them when they came. First of all, you're traveling a thousand miles across the desert, which is not good to do just three people. First of all, that's not safe. It's not a safe travel to do by yourself. You would most definitely have some people for an army to protect you. But the other reality of that would be is that these men were important men. They were leaders. So they would also have servants, people to take care of them. So how many people showed up in Jerusalem that day? Some scholars say it could be up to 300. Some say four to 500 people traveling across the desert to come and see this baby Jesus. No doubt being led by whoever these wise men were, right? These magi from the east. And so no wonder that when they show up, there's a commotion. No wonder that when the entourage shows up, that there is a little bit of shakiness in Herod. And so here they come, they arrive on the scene, and we begin to try to understand who they are. Now, what about this star that they see? Because notice it says, go back into the text, that we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. What is this star? Well, some say it's Halley's Comet. But the problem is, Halley's Comet wasn't discovered until probably 11 centuries later. So we really don't have uh, any, any significant information before that. Uh, you know, some say it's a supernova. You know, but folks, let's just get simplistic, okay? Our God's a creative God, amen? I believe, and you can, you can disagree with me if you want to. I believe God created a star in the heavens to point to his son, Jesus. Hey, if he can create a fish to swallow a man and spit him out three days later, a star is nothing. I mean, after all, go back to creation. What does the Bible say in creation? It says that the first day there was complete darkness. And what did God do? God spoke and there was light. You know, you go to day four, what did God do? God says, well, let's just put all this light in some luminaries. And God creates the moon, the stars. He creates the, the galaxies on that day, right? So if God can create billions of galaxies, certainly God can create one star that shines bright in the heavens that points to where his son is. And so I believe it's a creative star that God has created to magnify and tell about his son, Jesus. And so they see this star. The spirit of God, no doubt, is involved in their hearts, speaking to them, and they begin the journey. And they begin to follow the star. And it brings them to the west, 
the west of where they lived. And it brings them into the place where they needed to find out from this leader, this king, where is it that this king, this one who has been born, where is he at? We followed him, verse 2, and notice that they came for one purpose, right? We think about a lot of things of why they came, but they only came for one purpose. Notice it says they came in the end of verse 2. We have come to worship him. Why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? I hope you've come to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's why we come. That's why we, listen, that's why we gather anytime we gather. should all be centered about Jesus. It's not about the preacher. You know, it's funny that, you know, a preacher announces he's going to be gone or going to be on vacation and... Some people just slip out of church. They, you know, they just want to be gone. Ed, you had that happen to you, right? When you were pastor, some people said, you know, well, pastor, Brother Mike's not going to be there. I'm going to skip out. You know, it's like, hey, God sees you. I may not know you weren't here, but God sees you, let me tell you. But listen, you're not coming to worship Brother Mike anyway. And you're not coming to, to worship Brother Tim or our, or our children's ministers or our deacons or our Sunday school teachers or each other. We've come here and gathered here like the wise men to worship Jesus. And that's why they came to worship him. So they arrive on scene, but then they bump into a guy whose name is Herod. I'm calling this the agitation of Herod. If you just pick up with me in verse three, it's very short, but notice the agitation of Herod. And when Herod, the king heard this, heard what? That Jesus had been born. They've come to worship. When he heard this, <laughs> he was troubled. That word troubled is, a, is an interesting word in the Greek because it also means to be shaken to the core. And so when they found out that there's a new king born, it, it shook, it rocked his world. But then he just rocked his world. Notice it said, and all Jerusalem with him. And so it was a resounding message. It was a message that shook people to the core. What in the world is going on here? You know, and so it shook them shook to the core. So I want you to think about Herod for a minute. Why is Herod agitated? Well, Herod's agitated because if you know anything about Herod, first of all, he really didn't have any right to any throne in Jerusalem. He, he came to the throne by manipulation. As a matter of fact, if you read his history, you'll find that he was appointed by Caesar Augustus to the throne because he sort of did some political playing and uh, finally wound up getting the throne. And his whole job on the throne was to reign as the king of Jerusalem in order to sort of secure the border to the west. That's sort of his job. But the, but the thing about Herod that you have to understand is that, that Herod was Mr. Nice Guy, but he was two-faced. So he was a nice guy in that he allowed the Jews to continue to worship. He allowed the synagogues to continue to do their thing. And so he did that. As a matter of fact, to identify with the Jews, try to get them to like him, because here's his problem. He was a man pleaser. So in order to get the Jews to like him, he didn't eat pork. Isn't that interesting? I'd be like, sorry, (laughs) y'all. Got to have some barbecue. Amen. Got to have some ribs. So he didn't eat pork. And so he was trying to play Mr. Nice Guy, but here's the other problem. The other problem with him is he's very sadistic. He, He was a man who was very brutal and very mean. As a matter of fact, he, he wanted to protect his throne so much that he killed one wife and three sons because he thought they were going to usurp his authority. That's the kind of guy he was. Now think about that for a minute. Now here come the wise men. They show up on the scene. Why is his world rocked? What? You're telling me there's another king born? Are you crazy? We can't have another king. I'm the king. 
You get it, don't you? You can see he wants to protect his own throne. He's thinking about protecting his own hide. He just wants it to be about him. And so Herod is sort of this guy who is trying to protect his throne, try to protect his rights that he thought he had. And so I want you to see what he does. Notice his response. <clears throat> Notice in verse 3, it says that he was troubled. So it shook him to the core in all Jerusalem. And then he says in verse 4, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So what does he do? He calls in all the religious leaders and he says to them, Tell me about the prophecy of the Messiah. Tell me, where is he supposed to be born? Now, he calls in the right people, doesn't he? He calls in the religious leader. We're talking about a God. We're talking about a Messiah, a king being born. And so he calls in the right guys. And so he brings in the religious leaders, and they begin to read the prophecy out of Micah 2. And what do they say? They say, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, as it's written. He said in verse 6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, he says, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And so here we have them reading the prophecy of Micah about the birth of the Messiah. But you know what's interesting? Do you not find it interesting in the text that they seem so unconcerned? I mean, they, they are so unconcerned that they read the prophecy about the Christ. They have all this pointing to the prophecy coming to truth or coming about, and yet they did nothing. Think about this. They did nothing. Can I tell you that it's sometimes the religious people who are supposed to be the worshipers of the Messiah, who are supposed to be the worshipers of the Christ, who do nothing? That's sad. You know why? Because, listen, y'all, we can get caught up with Christmas being just a mundane holiday about a baby born who we call Jesus. And we can say, yeah, Jesus is the reason for the season, but we can do that nonchalantly. We can do that whole humbly, and we can just go on about our daily business. But if it's really about Jesus, if it's really about the Messiah, if it's really about the Savior who came, then you think we'd be a little bit more interested in the holiday. Amen? Am I right? Think about that. But here are the religious leaders, and I find it interesting. They're just not even interested. So they read the prophecy, and then what does Herod do? Herod says in verse 7, he has a little secret meeting with the guys. He says, he called them secretly and determined from them at what time they saw the star. So now what he's doing is he's putting his puzzle together. He said, okay, guys, now tell me, when exactly did you see this star? Like, what time sequence can we put on this? And so now he's beginning to put the puzzle together because here's what he's doing. He is plotting. He is in an evil plan. And what is his evil plan? His evil plan is that if I can find this kid who is supposed to be the next king to the throne, if I just snuff him out, my problem solved. That's all he's concerned about. And so he, he devises an evil plot. He calls them together. He begins to say, okay, what's this time schedule? Now we know, listen, we know from the narrative that it's not they're going to see baby Jesus in a manger. We know this. By the time they show up, he's in a house. So let's think about this time frame for a minute because we had to put this timepiece together. So what is this timepiece? Well, this timepiece, according to historians, when you begin to think about the time that it could be, we're talking anywhere from 
Jesus being a couple of months old up to possibly two years of age. By the time they would have traveled a thousand miles in a caravan from the the west to come here, or from the east to come here to the west, by the time they would have traveled to where Jesus was, it's possible that it could have been a year and a half journey. It's possible. So do we know? We don't really know. What we do know is that Herod has sort of figured out the math, and figuring out the math, later he's going to kill every child that's two and under. Why? Because he's not leaving anything to chance. He is going to snuff out this little king. So Herod is this evil guy who's agitated. Do you ever get agitated? I was a little agitated last night. We were shopping and I got a little agitated. <laughs> and remember I told Marina, I said, I hate Christmas. <laughs> I do. I hate Christmas. I think I told a few people that too when I was walking out of a store last night too. That I just hate Christmas. All this, you know, hustle bustle. We've been to 15 stores looking for one thing. You ever been there? Hey, man. I told Marina we could have we could have filled our car up with gas and bought it at the other store and been still cheaper. I think. Um, <laughs> but you know, we ever get that way? Yeah, we all get that way, right? There's times when we get agitated at Christmas. Why do we get agitated at Christmas? Because listen, we may not be like Herod and have a bunch of evil thoughts. We may not have a bunch of evil plans in our heart. But we forget what it's all about. Right? We forget the true meaning of Christmas is about a king who was born in Bethlehem. And so we get agitated. It's very easy to do. Amen? Some of y'all are going to be traveling the next couple of days. It's easy to get agitated out there on the highways. You know? But just remember... Hey, we're going to go see family. We're going to enjoy some downtime. But listen, the reality is, it's still about Jesus. Still about this king of the Jews. Amen? Then lastly, I want you to see, as we sort of move into verse 8, I want you to see as we sort of, we wrap it up this morning, the adoration of Christ. Notice in verse 9, it says, And when they heard the king... They departed, and behold, this, this is incredible. Behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them until it came and it stood over where the young, man, young child was. And when they saw the star, verse 10, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. So apparently the star led them so far. They went in and inquired about Jesus. And when they came out, there's the star again. Isn't that amazing? And so the star begins to lead them, not just a thousand mile journey. Now it's leading them city block to city block, to city block to this street, through this narrow path, through this alleyway to a specific house. Y'all, that's incredible. That's what our God does. Amen. That's what our God does. And so he does that. He leads them there. And so it says in verse 11, and when they came into the house, They saw the young child, no longer a baby, a young child described here, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped. First of all, I want you to see, as we think about this adoration, I want you to see, first of all, their humility. As they come before this Christ, what do they do? They fall down. What a a sense of humility. These were great men. These were men that had people serve them. And yet they understand how great Christ is. And they fall prostrate before him. And they do that in humility. Listen, we're called to worship in humility. Amen. 
It's kind of hard to worship God when you're prideful, when you're thinking about me, when it's all about me. Worship's got to be about me. You can't worship when it's all about you. Amen? We need to get our eyes on Jesus and prostrate ourselves before Jesus and fall down at his feet and worship him. And that's what they did in humility. Amen? But they also did that with great reverence. Listen, falling down prostrate, not just about humility, it's also about being reverent. It's about acknowledging who it is you bow before. So yes, he's greater than me, I humble myself, but he is great. We sang about it. How great is our God. And so when we think about them coming and adoring the Christ child, they acknowledge that he is greater than them. He is worthy of worship. I love that. Number two in the hymnal, I think it is. Worthy of worship is the name of the song. He is so worthy, y'all. Amen. And this is the Christ they came to worship. But not only did they humble themselves, not only were they reverent, but notice what they did. They opened their treasuries and presented gifts to him. Listen, they gave to the king. Now, does God need anything from you? He doesn't. God is self-existent. God doesn't need anything from us, amen? He really doesn't. God doesn't depend upon us because we're not dependable, amen? I love what Paul says to young Timothy, right? Even if we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. So God's not dependent on us. But, you know, when I think about what God asks of us in the Scripture, now that we're followers of Christ, right, out of the the relationship that has been birthed in us and our hearts through Christ, now that we belong to him, what has he called us to? Well, we always forget Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship. His, his piece of art, the Bible says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now I want you to think about that. So our works can be a way of worship. And by the way, those works have been prepared before him, by him. He has prepared for us to walk in them. But then there is this idea, the Hebrew writer says, that we worship and we give him the service of our lips. We, we acknowledge him, right? It's a sacrifice of praise. What are you giving to God this year? My son, I went to go see him the other day, and we sat at a table eating some breakfast, and he said, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? We're always asking, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? Have you ever thought about what does God want? He doesn't need anything. Please understand that. He needs nothing. He owns everything anyway. He doesn't need anything. But have you ever thought about what what service am I going to render unto God? Maybe it's going on a mission trip. Maybe it's writing that Lonnie Moon check. Maybe it's doing a benevolent uh, of some family you know of that needs something for Christmas they can't afford. And you're you're going to go and you're going to help them. You know, Jesus did say, the least you do unto them, what you, you've done it unto me. Did he say that somewhere? Ed, I think he said that, right? You know, so how is it that God doesn't need anything and he is so independent of us? I mean, it's incredible. Yet he chooses within the context of our relationship with him to use us in so many ways. And it just bothers me that so many of us don't want to be used. That we're so comfortable 
And here the wise men are being used by God to declare that there's a king who's been born. And they come and they worship him. And then they give gifts to him. And they give gifts of what? Gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, it's, it's puzzling to me. It's humorous to me that you can read 25, 30 commentaries about what do those gifts represent. And it's interesting to me how people try to get creative and they make all kinds of, you know, uh, ideas of what these gifts represent. For example, uh, I think these are very good. I think the, the, the gold represents kingship. He's a king. Amen. Matter of fact, he is the king of kings. Uh, there's no one greater than Jesus. The, the, the frankincense, you know, they say, uh, represents his priestly role, uh, that he would uh, be anointed with frankincense to be our great high priest. And, and rightly so. Read the book of Hebrews. You find that he is our great high priest. We don't need another. Amen. And then there's the myrrh. And you can remember when Jesus' body was prepared, uh, they prepared his body with myrrh. And so speaking of the fact that he's human, that uh, he's going to die, and rightly so, he dies on the cross of Calvary in your place and in my place, bearing our sin on the cross. Why? Because sin has separated us from a holy God. And the only way that you and I can be right in relationship with God is through the death, the sacrificial death of his son on the cross of Calvary. His blood washing away our sin. His fact that he rose on the third day from the dead. That is the only way that we can be right with God. You cannot be right by God by buying people Christmas presents or by giving Lottie Moon Christmas offerings or even going on mission trips or doing good to other people. The only way to be righteous is to have somebody else's righteousness imputed to you. And that's what Jesus has done on the cross. That's what it's all about. And so as we look at the scene, as we look at the fact that they come in and they begin to worship this one Christ, we can think about all what the gold represents and what the myrrh represents and all of that. But can I just tell you that it's all part of God's divine plan that you find in verse 13 and following. And you pick up verse 13, right away God tells Joseph in a dream, hey, gather your family up and get out of town. As a matter of fact, go down to Egypt. Now, they're going to have to go down to Egypt and stay a little while. How do you think they're going to afford to live in Egypt? Have you ever thought about it? He was a carpenter, right? He didn't have a lot of money. These people that preached that Jesus had a lot of money, that's nonsense. That's foolishness. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't come from royalty. He didn't come from rich people. How do you think he afforded to live in Egypt? How do you think Joseph could do that? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Do you think those things cost something? Yeah, they cost a little bit of money. And it could shelter them while they were there. Isn't that incredible? Think about that. Why? Because of the evil plot of a man named Herod, who right after that, beginning of verse 16, is going to kill a bunch of babies. Let's wrap it up. Christmas is about worship. It's about worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So can I ask you three questions? First of all, let me ask you, are you agitated? And if you'd asked me that last night, I'd say, yeah, I'm a little agitated. I'm a little agitated. Why? Because, you know, we, we lose sight, right? We lose sight of what it's all about, and we get agitated. And the hustle and the bustle of life and Christmas shopping and all that, Ed, get a little irritated, a little agitated. So I wonder if you're agitated this morning. You know what the cure of agitation is? Put your eyes on Jesus. Christian, get back to what the center is about Christmas. It's about Jesus. 
But the second question I want to ask is this. this. This is a little bit more close to home for us who are believers. And that is this. Uh, are you just in a position where you just don't care? The religious leaders, they read Micah, but they didn't go see Jesus. They didn't go try to find. They didn't say, you know what? God may be doing something. The Messiah may have been born. No, they didn't do that. They let them go on their merry way and didn't join them. There's no record of them ever leaving the palace. I wonder, do we just sometimes just get filled with a little bit of apathy? We just don't care. You know what the cure of that is, right? Get your eyes back on Jesus. And then I wonder this morning, can we honestly, honestly, honestly say that we're in a position of worship this morning? Are we really going through the season with our eyes on the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whereby which we are worshiping as we travel through the season? Can I tell you, it's easier said than done. Let's pray. Thank you for listening today. And remember, you can find more information about Pastor Mike and the church at our website, www.fbclp.life.